Welcome to the HBCU podcast. I'm Representative Alma Adams, founder of the bipartisan HBCU caucus. In an effort to bring awareness about the importance of the legacy of HBCUs, the work of the caucus empowers not only Congress, but enables the HBCU community to collaborate and work collectively on the goal of student success. This podcast highlights the often unheard voices and centers stories on the purpose and the promise of an HBCU education. Join us for a few moments as we share why HBCUs dare to lead by considering conditions for success, transformation processes, and how rigorous content prepares students for a successful future. have a long storied history from before slavery to the mid 20th century and profoundly influenced the course of our nation for the last 150 years. Join us on this journey as we learn of the stories about the wonders and possibilities of an HBCU experience. I'm your hostess, Dr. Jennifer Stimson. I'm an educator, an innovator, a scientist, and an Einstein fellow. I'm a proud alum of Dillard University, Go Blue Devils, and a proud member of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated. I will guide you on our episode as we learn more about what is happening at HBCU campuses. As we look from the past and connect it to the future, HBCUs are the definitive education for African-American students. You will hear from those closely affiliated to the HBCU experience from the folks in the Divine Nine to some activists, from members of Congress to the HBCU presidents themselves. And importantly, we will hear from the students, future, current, and alums. This podcast is a reminder of the future and promise of a successful education and importantly, the importance of HBCUs. Let's get into it. everyone. You are joining us on our next episode of the HBCU Caucus podcast. And this episode, we're going to learn a little bit about the history of a unique sector of these HBCUs. Those HBCUs are known as the 1890s. Do you know what that means? I didn't know until this summer, but the word or that name 1890s centers from the Morrell Act in which established land grants so that higher institutions of education could be established. So a little bit of back history is that the land grant colleges 
for agriculture is, you know, this whole history of it being intertwined in the history of the higher education in the United States, because everyone wanted to desire to be, you know, upwardly mobile. And even as early as the 17, late 1700s, people were going to college, not in huge droves, but they were going to college. And so in 1862, land grant status for the establishment of agriculture and mechanical arts schools was known as the Morrill Act, Land Grant Act of 1862. Well, let's talk about 1862. Now, you know, 1862, a whole lot of people in, in that time were enslaved. And so because they were enslaved, they were not entitled to this freedom of education as many of the other institute, I mean, as many of the other non-enslaved people. And if we think about that, you have this time frame, 1862, it's right at, in, right at the beginning of the Civil War. So people are fighting states' rights, slavery, no slavery, what's really going on? Well, let's fast forward to 1890. There was a rewrite of the Morrell Act, and in 1890, it established that there was a new opportunity for land grants to be um, associated with higher education. And guess what's happened in 1890? Slavery is over in the United States. And so now Blacks are free to go to school and go to college. And so today's episode, we're going to learn a little bit about the 1890 history. It's significant and it's promise for today and what's going on at these institutions that are really important. And I'm interviewing today a very important gentleman who's going to talk to us about his work with the 1890s and his work with the Ignite Bill and then just this importance of land-grant institutions in society. And that is Mr. Paul Braithwaite, and he is the Chief Strategist of Federal Street Strategies. So what's going on, Paul? Hello, Jennifer. Thank you for having me on tonight. Oh, I'm so glad that you're here. And I want to make sure that everybody knows uh, he is an HBCU alum. And at the end of our conversation, he's going to tell us his HBCU story. So shout out to all of the Delaware State alums, because Mr. Paul is one of you. So let's get into it. So Paul, I'm going to start off by asking you to tell us what is the importance and significance of the 1890 model and speak to us about the history and the development of these schools. Well, uh, I just believe, um, you know, first of all, thank you for doing uh, the podcast and uh, putting it together uh, to, to really talk about and record um, in real time, uh, you know, very important universities in our countries, not just for African-Americans, but for our countries. I mean, um, the, the, the 1890s are located in 18 states, mostly across the southern United States, stretching from Texas over to Florida, up to Delaware, and then over to Ohio. Um, and they form a network of universities that work collaboratively together in the agriculture space. Uh, primarily. They do many other disciplines, but as you had mentioned in your opening, the agriculture uh, field is where they all got their starts. And you mentioned 1862, the first group of land grants were created in 1862, but African-Americans were not permitted or allowed to go there. And it took them 28 years to give uh, us the same status that these uh, land grants had. Um, 
to, uh, to, to, to educate um, African-American and, and newly freed um, slaves. And these universities for the last 130 years have been doing that. And I would say doing that exceptionally well. Um, they touch all communities. They are usually the economic engines in their communities. They are the largest employer. Uh, they um, you know, serve a vital role in, in, in each of their uh, communities, both rural and urban, um, and, are, and are really a national uh, uh, HBCU system within the HBCU system, Jennifer. That is um, that is pretty significant. And as I thought about your list of 18, um, what has always stood out for me um, was this idea that schools had this these two symbols in the middle of their the state name and the word university, and it was A and M. And you know, it. I really growing up, I never, I didn't didn't know what A and M always stood for. I, you know, I'm from Texas, and so I was I was very familiar with Prairie View A and M University. And um, going, you know, through the HBCU community, we all know Florida A and M University. And then I've got many friends that are alums of Alabama A and M University. And so this A and M has a very important role in um, defining. Um, the history of these schools, and it is that agriculture and mechanical arts. So if you think about it, everyone, our agriculture and mechanical arts, in the 1890s in the, in the United States, we were not highly industrial. There is still a large percentage of the population that was still agrarian. We were still growing the majority of our foods. We were still surviving off the land. And this land provided a lot of that. And so what was very important, you know, going on is that you didn't just go to school to get an education. You went to school to learn how to survive and get this agricultural background. And the word mechanical arts is just, you know, a, a fancy way back then of saying like engineering. And, you know, people were creating new machinery to harvest the 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 farming that was going on. And so what is awesome is that there was still STEM that was happening in the 1890s by giving it that name, agriculture and engineering, that's science and technology in the 1890s that people don't wanna do. So I wanna make sure that I acknowledge that STEM was going on in the 1890s. And this idea of agricultural and mechanical um, arts that was happening. So I love that um, you, you spoke about that. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about what, you know, I mentioned technology. So talk to us about how important these land grant institutions are as we move into this, you know, this technology rich world. Is there anything significant about the technology and land grant institutions? Yeah, certainly. And again, um, I mentioned 18 states, 19 schools in 18 states. Uh, Alabama is, is lucky and has two, but both Tuskegee and Alabama A&M, but each of the other states uh, have won um, uh, 1890 in their, uh, in, their, in their state. But, you know, technology, agriculture, I mean, you know, look, we are all trying to be more efficient. Um, uh, and, and that is true in agriculture. We have to feed more people. We have to clothe more people. Uh, we don't have more land necessarily to do that. And so we've got to be, you know, the crops have, have to use the same amount of land to grow more crops um, each year, year after year. 
Um, you, you, you know, you have to, you know, stand, uh, do research around uh, um, uh, eliminating disease and parasites. And a lot of these schools and a lot of these universities are doing just cutting edge work. Um, one of the great things in the last Farm Bill, in the 2018 Farm Bill, um, a number of members, Congresswoman Adams, uh, Senator Brown, uh, Chairwoman Stabenow, um, David Scott, all had just wonderful ideas around how they better, you know, uh, in, uh, invest in these universities, invest in these students, uh, so that they create the next generation of uh, technological superstars um, uh, coming out of these universities, because um, with resources, with better uh, infrastructure, we know the, the, the sky um, is, is, the, is the limit. Um, and, um, and, 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 you know, with the more dollars and investments that the Congress is making and then that the um, private sector is also stepping up, I mean, those investments uh, are helping these schools hopefully to be on the cutting edge, not just to, to, to feed, the, to feed our, our, their local communities or our country, but indeed um, the world. And I can just go school by school and talk about research that they're having and you know, with regards to cattle and to different crops and to um, different fabrics. I mean, it, it, it's just fascinating the amount of work that's happening uh, at each one of these individual schools. And then collectively as they share the information and meet with one another and collaborate with one another. It, I love that, you know, you mentioned that there are 19, uh, 18 states that are featured, even though there are two in Alabama. Um, and I think about the geology and the geography of, of the states, you know, they're in the deep south, all from Texas, all the way to Florida, and just the, the climate and the geography that changes from the very humid and very dry northern part of Texas, all the way to the humid area and an area of northern Florida where there's lots of where there's lots of flush and and lots of um, greenery and then you go up to Delaware and as you go up the eastern seaboard the climate also changes and and things that can be grown there and and all of the that that bio that ha that's happening and as I think about the future of education and I think about the future of our of our lives um, how each one of these institutions could play a very critical role, and they probably do, I'm not saying that they're not, but they probably play a very important role in the sustainability. Um, and, and if we think about redefining STEM, um, STEM, the S in STEM stands not only for science, but sustainability, because if we go forward and, and people, and we, need, we don't have any more land, as you mentioned, but we need more food because we have more people. And so how are we using the agriculture, the space and this innovation to grow quality food for people? And that's 18 different institutions, 19 different institutions that are out there just making it happen. So that is pretty awesome. So I'm not worried about being hungry in the future because um, I got 18 states to go to and be like, knock, 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 what y'all cooking for dinner? <laughs> Well, that's a great point that you make because again, across those 18 states, those universities are not just working in their communities. They have an extension uh, requirement and commitment to work in, uh, in all of the counties in their states, work with farmers and big and small farmers and disadvantaged farmers and uh, the 4-H groups and the like. And so their impact is, is, is really felt across their states and uh, our universities take that very, very seriously, uh, the work that they are 
uh, doing with, uh, with farmers and agriculture leaders all across the states that they are respectively in. This summer, I took a group of students to a farm in, in Dallas. And um, even though Paul Quinn College is not um, one of the 1890s, it does have its own farm um, on, on the campus. And um, what was so amazing is to see these young students. My, my students are middle school age. And so I had middle schoolers out there farming. And this idea of this, you know, these modern technology kids that are TikToking are also out here, you know, knee deep in mud and planting and, and, and harvesting. And this idea of what it means to be a farmer has this old image, you know, repurposed and reprocessed. And so I love that we are taking something that um, our ancestors and just really anyone from any background in the 1890s, you know, at that time, you were harvesting off the land. And now we've almost come, you know, on, on a bell curve of sorts where you've got a new generation of people knowing how to farm. But this farming is now part of, you know, their their course of life in a way that it was never before. So um, I like that it's that students are getting involved. And uh, one of the things that I anticipate doing in is looking at how the soil, the science of the soil is really nurturing what we eat and how we eat. And um, that's really important because I'm a chemist. And so talking about the science of the soil is like, what are these nutrients and nutrients are of course the chemical elements and all of those things that are dissolved in the soil to grow. What is important for us to have to eat um, seeded food, not seeded food, GMOs. I mean, there's so much, we could talk all day and take different topics and talk from there. Um, and so my, my next question to you is to talk to us about, um, you know, your connection to Representative Adams and her Ignite Bill and what that Ignite Bill can do for these 1890s. Now, she is a proud alum of an 1890 at the, let me make sure I say the Representative Adams, I got you, the North Carolina State, um, North Carolina A&T University and it was not for the North Carolina A&T University, she would not have been able to go to the Ohio State University. She says that all the time. So shout out to you, Representative Adams. But talk to us about the importance and significance of her Ignite Bill, um, particularly in relationship to these 1890 institutions. Well, given that Congress is talking about infrastructure, and that seems to be the big word of the day or the big word of the year uh, in our country um, as it relates to, to building up the, the infrastructure of our country. That Ignite bill that she did with uh, Senator Coons and Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina and uh, Congressman French Hill helps to position these universities for the 21st century. There has been a, a tremendous backlog of deferred maintenance that needs to be done and a new investment to help bring these schools to new buildings, new labs, new equipment, uh, all the resources that these uh, universities need to do the work that you just talked about, Jennifer, um, in, um, in, their, in, their, on, in and on their campus with their researchers and with their uh, students. It is hard, you know, again, using um, using equipment that's 10, 20, 30 years old when we know that there's new equipment available, new buildings, the technology to run those, um, uh, run those, those, that equipment needs to be had, the, the electric system needs to be upgraded, the water systems need to be upgraded, the, the air conditioning units and the central air needs to be 
uh, retrofitting uh, to, to make it all more efficient needs to be done. And so the resources that the, that, that infrastructure bill, that Ignite bill would bring would just be tremendous. And then similarly, I mean, all of our schools, much like I said in 2018, we, we got significant investments, new centers of excellence were created, six new centers of excellence were created, but I mentioned there are 19 schools, so that means 13 of them don't have uh, centers of excellence. We need to, each one of them should have a center, of ex, a center of excellence. And the other big thing that I talk about often is how, again, in a pandemic, I think it was shown, we don't have the healthcare infrastructure that we need. There are only four universities, HBC universities that have medical schools. Um, a smaller number have dental schools. Um, we, that, a smaller number have veterinary schools for folks to advance and do their PhDs um, in, in veterinary science. And so some, again, effort needs to be put into building up that infrastructure. As I mentioned, these are the largest employers in their respective communities. But the fact that when we were doing immunizations and doing screenings, we had to have people in parking lots uh, uh, shows you that we just don't have the infrastructure we need. The resources in Ignite might help us to build more nursing schools, more medical schools, more teaching hospitals, more places to help us better prepare for a pandemic, which we know probably will come again. That is if we ever get out of the COVID-19 pandemic. But we have to be forward leaning and thinking. If you and I were doing this podcast 10 years ago and I said, hey, it's August of 2011. We got a plan now to get something done so that if we have a pandemic in 10 years, you might scratch your head and say, "Yeah, maybe." But if we know now what we if we knew if we knew then what we know now, I think we would have made the investment. It would have cost us less back then than the 6 trillion dollars we've already spent on trying to address the COVID pandemic and the more money that we may need to spend. We got to be smart about these investments as we go forward. And, 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 and the investment in, in, in building the infrastructure of these HBCUs will pay dividends, uh, both in the short term and the long term. And these are, these are opportunities that can't be and won't be exported um, uh, outside of our country. They are for the benefit of our country. And so we should embrace that and, 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 and utilize that in a meaningful way. Wow. I mean, I can't agree with you more. Um, and, and again, looking from the um, importance of research at seeing at that research with that research mindset, um, I can't imagine how much data is still is out there for us to translate as a result as a result of the pandemic. These last 22 months or however many months we've been in it has produced a significant amount of information. And what that information is telling us is that black and brown people are still behind in certain areas, professionally, academically, um, physically in terms of their health. Um, and just this idea, I love what you said, centers of excellence, more um, dental schools, more um, medical schools, more nursing schools, a variety of different opportunities for students to go out and collect this data and translate this data. There are three major areas that are moving rapidly in, in science, and that's data science, cybersecurity, and, um, oh my God, I've just lost it, data science, cybersecurity, and um, I'll remember it in a second. And taking all of that information, oh, AI, um, artificial intelligence, and taking all that information and using it in such a meaningful way will help us not even in 10 years, we ain't gotta wait for the next pandemic. We can be ready to do this in, at the, in the fall of 2022 if we, if we were able to interpret that data. And 
you know, if you have so much stuff and not enough um, way to process it, that becomes a problem. But if, if the infrastructure was there at these institutions, they could help with this processing and this research and coming up with new ideas. And diversity in STEM is right there. Having new voices and new input and new perspectives would really add value to the future and promise of science education um, overall. So um, I'm definitely um, hopeful that you know, there's more conversation about this infrastructure at HBCU campuses because who knows what'll happen if they get it. We, we got to, you know, get ready for that. Um, that's the thing. Um, so one of the things that, uh, you know, you mentioned about uh, this pandemic and if we're going to get out of this one, I've seen a couple of memes about um, everybody's excited at these HBCUs for homecoming season. They're like, we already missed one. We can't miss, an we missed two. We can't miss another one. And so, right. you know, what is that going to look like this? We have to do what we need to do so that we can get to the other side of this. So be it, see to it. So do what we need to do. So be it, see to it. We got to do something because right. I, I, right. I got a couple of homecomings I got to go to at two of these land grant institutions, Prairie View A&M and the North Carolina a and So I got to get to those two homecomings. Yeah, but you're right. If we don't get it right on the pandemic, we won't be able to go to our we won't be able to go to our, our our homecomings. We won't be able to do a lot of things. See family for the holidays again. I mean, mm. you know, we, we, we got to get it together. Last year, this time, Jennifer, we did not have vaccines. Now we have vaccines um, mm -hmm. that, you know, um, are, are proving to be effective. And so we just, we have to, we know what we have to do. We just have to do it. So be it, see to it, everybody. Um, so we're at, almost at the end of our podcast, and I'm going to turn it over again to, to Paul, and I would love for him to share with us a little bit about his 1890s and HBCU story as an alum of Delaware State University. Paul? Well, thank you. I am an alum of Delaware State. My mom taught, my story at, at an 1890 starts with my mom. Uh, she, uh, after graduating from Howard University, got a job working at Delaware State. She worked in the English department um, at Delaware State uh, for 25 years and was a professor there. She had done her work in Shakespearean uh, literature, and um, we had to learn how many sonnets Shakespeare uh, wrote, 144, uh, for those of you counting it at, at home, how many lines in a, in a sonnet, 11. Uh, you know, we, we had to learn all of these different, uh, uh, we had to learn all of these different things, and uh, I grew up around the campus and um, and went ended up going to school there and getting my getting my undergraduate degree. My uh, my sister uh, went to Delaware State. My brother went to Delaware State. We we all uh, we were all we we're we we're all Delaware State uh, Hornets. And and you know, look, it gave me the foundation that I needed uh, to be able to 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 advance uh, both academically and professionally. Uh, to go on and get my master's degree uh, and my law degree, um, and it was a it was a it was a great experience. And today, the, the school is doing uh, very very well. It's one of the first schools to acquire a another university. They just purchased uh, Wesley College. In, yes, in talk to us about that. Yes. Well, they are planning to change to turn that into sort of the nursing school uh, hub, medical sort of hub there. Um, for the university right there in downtown um, Dover. Um, and it's exciting uh, to see uh, it happen. 
um, and um, um, and and what the future again may hold. I talked about a little bit about about our um, about our work. Um, I talked I talked a little bit about our work uh, uh, in the healthcare space and what we need to do um, there. Uh, and you know, Delaware State is just trying to build out its infrastructure and, and build out the work that it's uh, build out the work that it's that it's doing. Um, um, and it's exciting to it's exciting to see um, uh, in uh, in in you know 2021 in the middle of a pandemic still still trying to uh, to, to get to get to where we need to where, where we need to get to. Um, and I think I said incorrectly, I want to go back just in case my mom listens to this podcast that um, uh, I, I think I said Shakespeare wrote 144. He wrote 154 sonnets and each sonnet has 14 lines. So I think I got my fours, my four, I had too many fours there uh, that I that I added in, but uh, but my memory, you, you can edit it out or, or, or not include it or whatever you want to do on the, uh, but I want to make sure that I, that, that she knows I do, I do know how many uh, sonnets Shakespeare wrote and how many lines in a sonnet. That's, you know, more than me because uh, that, that's okay. We're not going to even edit that out. It's okay. <laughs> we, we're all good. Um, um, your mom being, a, being an English professor, um, I bet your handwriting is impeccable uh, wow. because that was back in the day when you, you could not use a computer to do any of your work. You had to handwrite that. And, and I always, I've been writing like a doctor since I learned how to write at three years old. So <laughs> my chicken scratch, I would never have a been approved by your mother. <laughs> well, she did penmanship for both my grandmother and my mom was very, very important. As you get older, it starts fading a little bit, but you do try to you do try to maintain as much as you possibly can as you as you as you get older. I'm sure your penmanship and you know we always we all spend more time on our uh, computers now and our devices, and so you know we don't have to necessarily write write until we write a check if people still even do that since now you can even pay with your phone, but, uh, um, but, uh, but, but nonetheless, again, good foundation for education, um, at, uh, at Delaware state. And, and I'm, and I'm a, I'm a, I'm a proud alumnus. We love our HBCUs. I, I, um, I honor you and I honor Delaware state and I honor the work that your mom put in and your grandmother as you know, we are, we, we walk into the room and we stand on the shoulders of the 10,000 ancestors who came before us. And so we're only great because of them. Um, and so, you know, I loved your, you know, he said that I, you know, graduated from Delaware state. I went on and got my master's and your foundation definitely prepared you for the leadership that you have now. And, and look at you and look at where you are and um, the accomplishments all because of your HBCU experience. So HBCUs definitely play a significant role and the future and how we navigate society. So um, they are really important. All right, so we're almost at the end. So I'm gonna let Paul give any closing remarks um, that he wants to share. Well, I just want to thank you for putting a spotlight uh, through this podcast on the work that's happening at HBCUs and helping us to tell our story uh, and to using this as a platform and a forum uh, to talk about both the opportunities and the challenges that we have. I mean, we could talk so much more uh, about, you know, these universities and the work that they're doing, but, you know, it, it can, they can only survive and continue and thrive. Uh, with the with the attention and the strong policy work that 
uh, members of Congress are doing through the bipartisan HBCU caucus that you had a, a role in helping while you were there, uh, Jennifer, and the broader coalitions, Democrats and Republicans, you know, not just doing symbolic stuff, but putting the time and effort in to put in real resources, to put in real policies that, that, that advantage them. Um, I, I look across the government, we have a unique relationship with the US Department of Agriculture. It could be better, it could be stronger, but the same is true at the Department of Defense and the National Institutes of Health and the National Science Foundation um, and the Department of Energy and the Department of Homeland Security. I mean, all of these government agencies have strong partnerships with universities um, and they should have them similarly with HBCUs. And, you know, as many students and uh, young people who we get in uh, uh, trained and involved in this public policy process at those respective agencies will help open up new opportunities for us and for future students. But we 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 need to leave no stone unturned as we uh, as we try to build up these universities because we're still playing catch up. You know, even with all the progress that we've made, uh, I hope you'll do a, a segment on. Uh, endowments and how much money uh, some of the larger schools have versus uh, some of our schools and the role that alumni can play and the role that corporations can play and the role, quite frankly, that the government is playing. Um, and, you know, again, one challenge we have, Jennifer, that we again, we didn't talk about is the federal government is doing the investments. State governments are supposed to be matching those investments dollar for dollar, and some are not. Some are doing well, some are not. And we've got to hold them accountable. Policymakers have to be held accountable. They just can't come on campus and give speeches at graduation and, and, and invocation uh, at convocations. They've got to put the real time and effort and resources behind our schools. And we, we have to make sure we there's an accountability that your podcast is an accountability. Having some report cards are, are accountability. Having some short reports on who's doing well and who's not. Uh, helps with that with that accountability, and so I just commend you for the work that you're doing and the work that you will continue to do um, to highlight all the good work uh, that uh, that both the 1890s and the larger HBCU community uh, are playing in our country for our country uh, and indeed for the world, uh, because the international footprint of some of these schools, both at the professor level and the student body is just amazing, and again, we just we can't we can't forget that uh, um, that uh, that we are interconnected now, and 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 uh, and 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 how we how we manage that, and how we uh, work on that, and address that will have a uh, a, a significant um, uh, role in how well uh, we do uh, in the future. And so I'm optimistic, but lots of opportunities ahead, a lot of challenges ahead, but uh, I, as long as the Lord gives me breath, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to staying on the battlefield to, to fight the fight. And I'm going to stand right there with you because I'm in it for the long haul as well. So let's carry the torch and carry our battle guard to the finish line together with others right. behind us. So um, I have no closing remarks. Uh, Paul Braithwaite, shut it down. And even though we just barely hit the tip of all of the greatness about 1890s, I encourage you to do some research and learn a little bit more about the importance of 1890s. And that way you can connect with what's really happening at these campuses. But we definitely want to recognize that those 18 states across the diaspora 
of the South and a little bit of the Midwest and the, and the North, um, that they are doing the work that is called to serve the student body in agriculture and in science education through agriculture, of course, and then in STEM with engineering. So I salute them. Thank you all for listening to this episode of the podcast. Stay tuned for what happens next. Who knows who's coming up and what we're talking about.